for its rich musical cultural heritage. We have produced one of the most vibrant musical forms and musicians in the world. However, we're still to adapt music as a formal subject in mainstream education. Music is an art that is synonymous with discipline and devotion. This can be a bit overwhelming for young kids to follow. But what if music is taught in a way that children become excited to learn the art? Making music fun is a distinctive art that renowned musician Bindu Subramaniam, along with her brother Ambi Subramaniam, seem to have mastered, as they carry the important life lessons, values, and the legacy of their parents, violinist Dr. L. Subramaniam and playback singer Kavita K. Subramaniam, to run the Subramaniam Academy of Performing Arts, also known as SAPA. Since the pandemic, they have moved all classes online and are consistently working towards creating online content that's engaging for their over 1 lakh students in India and 14 countries around the world. In this episode, Bindu talks about her journey from being an artist to becoming an entrepreneur and how she's making a mark in the Indian education system. Hi everyone, welcome to today's episode of Women on Top. Bindu, welcome today and thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here because you are such a boss. So this is is very fun for me. Well, today is all about you and I want to hear your story. So, you know, you, like me, graduated with a law degree and uh, (laughs) went on to have a career in music. um, And I went on to have a career in restauranting. Uh, So clearly we left our our sort of legal degrees behind. And um, But take us through that journey and what was the idea behind um, starting Sapa. So I always say that law is like my dirty little secret. And I, I kind of ended up there because I read too many John Grisham novels as a child. So I kind of had this feeling that I would be so excited about like 85 hour, you know, corporate law office work. And then when I was in like my second year of law school, I'm like, this is not what I want to do in life. And then like a good responsible child, my parents are like, finish your degree. I finished my degree. And then they're like, you have a bachelor's, get a master's. So I got a master's. And then I'm like, now what? And then, but but I was always kind of very sure that um, whatever I did after, after my second year of law, I was very sure that whatever I did, it wouldn't be law. So I got very excited in the idea of music and music business. And I had always been performing, but I had never kind of seen it as a career. Uh, so actually the first business that I started out of college was uh, after I did this songwriting and music business at Berkeley, I was like, how do I do music business? Because that that, feel, that felt exciting to me. I started a company called Subramaniam Entertainment. Uh, and that was basically just a way to organize all the different musical activities we did in a business, whether it's like publishing or performing or releasing music. Uh, but at some level, I had always been very passionate about being an educator. Like my my grandfather was a music teacher who used to go by bicycle to, to teach pe- kids in Sri Lanka. Uh, and there was just some, and my mom used to kind of write books and there was this whole kind of background of music education. And I felt like, that was a really powerful way to be giving back. Uh, and you know what it's like once your kids are born, you, you kind of relook at the world in a different way. Yeah. And I felt like it was a good opportunity to get into music education, get into kind of seeing the way that kids learn and seeing how we could make music more accessible. Because when you're looking at things through the eyes of a child, you start reflecting back on the challenges that you had. And I was probably a terrible student. I mean, like if you find any of my teachers, I'm sure they, they'd be like, yeah, her, did she do well? I'm kind of 
was surprised. So we started reflecting on everything that went wrong and how we can fix it for our kids. And I think that's how I became this sort of accidental music educator. So, you know, uh, like you mentioned, you've you've got this sort of um, the, the, the education aspect of it, but you did uh, set up a business as well. So can you explain the business model and, uh, you know, how does how does the sort of business side work as well as the, you know, the educational aspect and the social aspect of it? I always say I'm an extremely accidental entrepreneur. I never set out to do something. And and I think sometimes as women, we don't give ourselves enough credit. Like I'm I have this incredible imposter syndrome to this day where I'll be sitting in a room and I'm like, do I really belong here? I don't really know what's going on. Uh, when my daughter was two months old, I was convinced that I had become so stupid that I just went and wrote the GMAT because I was like, I am very sure, like I need, I need a piece of paper to tell me how stupid I am at this point. So the, when I got into it, I was thinking of impact, right? I was thinking very ambitiously about how I can make the world a better place and all of those things. And and um, so I spent months working on this first textbook of music for babies, okay? I was like, how do we teach classical music to babies in a way that would excite them and inspire them? And, you know, I, I was testing out paper thickness and every time I would see a small child, I'd put this book very creepily into their hands and see how they would react to it. And, you know, oh, the paper is too thin, they're able to tear it. Oh, it's too thick, now they're not able to hold it. What is the size? It has to go in the bag. So it was, it was such a passion project that I wasn't thinking in terms of business at all, to be honest. And I don't think that I had that skill set. And then we had like five students or six students at Sapa. And then I go to the printer with this book that I'm absolutely in love with. And he's like, Madam, minimum 500 books. So I'm like, okay, so what do I do now? So my, my option one is to kind of go down to printer or print call and be like, hey boss, can you give me five spiral bound copies of this? Or I can, so I went and took a loan from my dad to make these, to make these books. Um, and of course, nobody bought them uh, and we I was like going from crossword to baby oi to first cry to flip card like somebody stock these books and and that was also the time like 2013 when uh you know landmark and all of these big stores were moving away from books and music and into toys so it was like the worst time ever that's when bookstores kind of stopped being about books so it was such a learning process for me to mess up so many things so spectacularly at the same time. And then we decided that, okay, uh, maybe we can be like scholastic and distribute through schools. And then we went and they're like, this is a terrible idea, but can you teach music? And then we're like, yeah, maybe we can. So then we started begging people and training them and teaching them and putting. So for so long, I was just looking at impact. Mm -hmm. And then I realized at some point, and this, this is a very hard thing and something that I struggle with even now, that in order to create the impact that you want to create, you need to be in control of your own destiny. So I can either spend 80% of my time begging someone else to give me money for charity, or I can work my blank off Mm -hmm. and make the money that I need to do the good work that I want to do. And yes. so it's it's kind of this shift that happens where you realize that business isn't evil. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Because sort of as women sometimes are coming from conservative families or even being musicians, right? Being an artist, art is your is the highest thing. And then you're not, it's not a commercial thing. It's your, it's your commune with the divine. And I believe all of that, but at some point it becomes so ingrained in you that you're almost apologetic about the fact that you're running a business or that you're doing something that it's is creating. Yeah. Exactly. So this is this is something that I struggled with for so long. And then I was like, hey, you know what? let's look at numbers but let's look at all the numbers impact happens when we make money and there's a sort of positivity associated with doing well so i it was a long journey and i think i'm somewhere in the middle of it still but i'm much less apologetic about saying that this is a business there is charity too but there is also business it's really interesting actually that you you know how to come to terms with that and and that was something that i found so interesting about what you're doing because music is that you know there's that whole left brain right brain and you know in my industry as uh, which is which is hospitality and restauranting uh, i always find that you know the chefs are the creative ones and they have no business sense like <laughs> no business sense um and then that's where sort of i come in uh where i have no creativity when it comes to you know cooking and food but i kind of you know we figured out over time what works from a business perspective and and you know and and so that's really interesting that you kind of had to sort of grapple with both aspects i guess and uh, so tell us a little bit more then about how you went on to develop that that business aspect and you know where you started generating revenue from then so at some point and i know this sounds really stupid but i'm okay with something stupid once in a while we realized that it was a viable business. So we started signing up with schools. Uh, and in the first year, we did only four schools as a pilot because from my perspective, I wanted to make sure it worked. We chose four different types of schools, schools that were close enough that we could drive to and then we delivered the books and we could jump in and do spot checks. And honestly, that first year, I took like a thousand exams myself. I listened to a thousand children singing on different days to kind of figure out, okay, this is this is the baseline quality of our program. And then we saw that people wanted to sign up more. And then we're like, hey, maybe we can talk to more schools. And then we realized very quickly that it was financially viable. And I'll, I'll be honest, at that point, I didn't understand what the numbers were. I wasn't looking at balance sheets and we were a really small team. So it's not like I had somebody else who was doing finance, but it was just in my gut. I knew that this was working because schools were coming back. Kids were happy. And at the end of the day, the checks weren't bouncing. Um, and then we kind of progressed to getting larger and larger. And at some point we realized that, okay, this is this is exciting and we started getting approached by sort of vcs and we started getting approached by other people and that's extremely flattering but if you're where i am and i've got no business sense it's also terrifying i'm like what do i do now like do do how does this work do i give you my do you want my company is this how so <laughs> there was kind of this panic that ensued and i was like okay we don't need funding now but we do need to understand where we are and how we're going and what our trajectory is. And in some sense, how I'm going to do right by Sapa, because this is an idea that works. We've got the in-school program that's working and that's a business. And our entire kind of after-school program through our centers was still run through our family trust at that point. So it was completely charitable. So we're looking at this one business aspect of it. And we're looking at the charitable aspect of it where we're just looking at creating the next generation of musicians. Uh, and this is scaling really well. Suddenly we're 10 centers there. And then I get a call from our auditor one day saying, hey, you know what? This actually shouldn't be a charity. 
you know, uh, like legally speaking and, and like every other way that we're speaking, you're not taking money out of it. And I respect that. But I think we should merge the two as a separate business entity. And we need to look at your charity as a completely separate thing. Right. So that again was like, wait, are you saying I need to be doing less charity? He's like, no, I'm not saying you need to be doing less charity. I'm saying that we need to streamline what your business and your charity looks like. And then at that time also, we uh, joined the Stanford Seed Transformation Program, which was amazing. Like truly, truly, I cannot give enough credit to that. And that was the first time that we kind of sat down and I'm sitting in a group with other entrepreneurs. Uh, and we all realize how lonely it is to be an entrepreneur at some point. And we're all looking at scale and we're kind of unabashedly, unashamedly saying that, yeah, we want to make the world a better place by scaling our businesses. Right. So then we're like, okay, so what are our business plans? How does our business model work? How much do we charge different schools? How do we make something that is affordable to everybody? But at the same time, people who can afford to pay more, we're giving them an option that that is viable for them. Uh, and then we just started carving out different ways. And then we thought we had all our answers. We were going to become the cult for culture. We needed to have a hundred centers because, you know, everybody wants to go out and learn music culture. It's so important. And then the pandemic hit and we're like, holy cow, what now? Because we've gone around telling everybody for the last decade that music should be learned face to face. It's about being in the same room as your teacher and all this online stuff is rubbish. Like this, it'll never take off. And then we're like, oh, okay. So about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then overnight we had like we had three days to take 10 centers and bring them online and teachers who are like the kind when they're on a whatsapp video call with you you're looking up their noses <laughs> or at their foreheads and so we're, we're working overtime to kind of figure out how to make this something that works and then at the back of my mind it's also how do we make this not a poor plan b because everything that I felt still stands, right? So we there are certain things that we can't do online, but what are the things that we can do online that we couldn't do? Well, yeah. Yeah. And then what we saw was that our centers were because schools were obviously really badly hit and that that was a uh, like that was our business, right? So that was a huge challenge for us to overcome and and suddenly have 70 teachers on our payroll and these are our people this is our family we have to take care of them but we're not generating any revenue right now so what do we do uh and then we saw that our you know our b2c model just exploded mm -hmm. and that went off so well but in that interim period where we were struggling the most powerful thing was the community that we had of our teachers we had like a lot of our teachers are like doctors, lawyers, engineers, people like you and me who wake up one day and decide that they don't want to be part of this corporate madness and they want to do something else. And so I was getting calls saying, hey, you know what? You guys haven't cut salaries, but if you want to, it's okay. I can I can go without salary for this many months. And I'm like, wow, okay. Uh, and then we get calls from other people saying, you know what? Um, I can do sales calls. Or you know what? Uh, I know how to edit video or I can, and just, it was this beautiful feeling of people stepping up. Yeah. And, and so that kind of gave us more Josh to be like, yes, we can build this business back up. It can be different. It doesn't have to be cult for culture. We won't be a hundred centers, but we will do something. We will create impact. And for me, it is always that sort of balance of running this business and 
reaching students and making something powerful there and taking care of teachers because i feel like musicians and music educators as a community they need to be protected and you know i mean you're not the only one who kind of had to figure out the whole digital space overnight really i thought it was just me <laughs> You know, I mean, we we were like we're restauranters. We're used to people coming in, and you know, and then we suddenly were like, oh my god, we have to look at delivery, and we have to look at people ordering online, and we're going to not be seeing whom we're serving, and this is just really crazy. But I think that you know, like you said, you have to make that work and not be not seem like a plan B, and you know, do that really well, and 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 kind of take what that offers you. Um, and one of the things that we found was that it suddenly gave us access to. um chefs and students all over the world so we started doing these workshops online which we used to you know do in person earlier um at our studio and uh, we were able to now reach like a wider audience and i'm sure the same thing happened with you know in in your space and of course you know in the last two years um edtech has completely exploded so how has that kind of enhanced and do you see this now as something that would work in parallel to what you do as you start coming back to you know a more in person format i mean are these now two things that are sort of going to coexist for your uh, for, for the you know um, for the business i think the future is some sort of hybrid model so uh, a few months ago we launched our learning management system our online learning platform and now we're teaching people through that we're teaching live classes around the world but we've also kind of launched these uh asynchronous sort mm -hmm. of uh, masterclass uh format with people like you know Usha Utup and Anup Jalota and my mom Kavita Krishnamurthy and it's it's really nice to see how people are engaging with that content and we see that there is a huge audience for that also where either i want to learn to sing like Usha ji or uh you know maybe on a friday night i want to decompress and kind of get into my nostalgia mode and and see how that works and I I think there will always be a place for that now. And when we're looking at live classes in person, I think that another way that this is going to happen is have these physical interactions where we're kind of looking at physical interactions as learning but also as, you know, your social and emotional fix. And then you go back home and you're also used to kind of working asynchronously and finding this material and and continuing um and doing things like that. As far as the business model goes, I think it's great because it's opened up the whole world for us. uh and more technology inevitably means an ability to scale and the the edtech market right now is incredible so we are looking at our first fundraise as well so i think i think it's a very exciting time to be doing innovative things and i think it's really great and at the same time a little terrifying to see how many people are here and what they're thinking and and for us sometimes it's fun because we're like we've got 10 years of experience and we know how some of this plays out and there's a lot of stuff that we haven't figured out but there is a lot that we have so if for us teacher training content creation all of those things are kind of stuff that we've worked on a lot so it's really nice to see the prominence that that sort of stuff is getting now um but then when the big bad guys come into music education it it, it can be scary at times <laughs> so we'll see completely lose your soul either right so yeah, yeah. but uh, you know i mean tell me uh, just in terms of the industry as well and since you're also um you know a, a performer how has the last sort of couple of years been for uh, musicians in terms of you know were they able to kind of switch to a um to a digital format or is it just that we're all waiting for you know yeah. uh, live performances to come back 
honestly, for most musicians that I know, it was sort of traumatic. Mm. And so many were in denial. Like they're like, okay, you know what? Things are canceled this week, but I'm not unpacking my suitcase because for the last, I don't know how many decades, I have been traveling three weeks in a month. Mm. And then slowly realizing that it's getting extended beyond. And again, there's no, there's no real plan B in place. Uh, and for for me, I kind of what I liked about it was it was an opportunity to kind of work on my music without deadlines. It was an opportunity to explore different things. And then, of course, these online concerts started happening and, and immediately we saw the spike where everybody's online all the time. And Friday night, if you kind of go on Instagram, you see that 73 of your musician friends are online and doing lives and then there's fatigue that sets in there. And then people are panicking, saying, wait, how do we monetize? Because for so many musicians or most of them, rather, they survive off of concert income and the moment that that's gone and there was no good mechanism to sort of monetize these online concerts it's just kind of their way to share and interact with fans and and sort of feel like their fans are still out there or that they're still relevant and but but i think we are morphing in a way that content creation is changing uh i see so many of our kids that we've been working with you know, since they were babies now coming into their tweens and teens and and looking at being creators. And that's so interesting to me because like when we were kids, maybe the pinnacle would have been a stadium show or, you know, performing at the Royal Albert Hall or something like that. And now the pinnacle is to be like a creator with a million followers on Instagram. And that's and, and I know that it's easy to discredit that and say it's about the makeup and it's about this, but also, there's a lot of work that goes into being a creator and it's so multidisciplinary. So I look at my own daughter sometimes, she's 10 and she's kind of working on piano and violin and gymnastics and singing and songwriter. And she doesn't study very much and she doesn't practice. And it's, it's terrifying to be a mom of a tweet because you're so sassy. But at the same time, she's building this unique skill set for herself that is not something that I've pushed on her. And I see so many of these other kids. I have some other students who are kind of like painting and songwriting. And one of them is like, I'm, I'm influenced by this K-drama. So uh, I'm doing a whole series of songs about murder, but it's artistic. And I'm like, okay, I you love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so this, this whole idea of creativity and artistic expression is so interdisciplinary now. So, and I think that the, the youngsters, I mean, I feel antique when I'm saying this, but that, I mean, I still think I'm relevant in some sense. They're just opening it up totally. So I know that concerts will come back. I know people will come on stage. I know that 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 uh, the, the senior level of artists who have had gigs and performed festivals and people like us will go back and do our own thing. But I think this has sort of accelerated that new way of creation and there's no going back from there. So if we look at what these new creators or these people who become influencers will turn around and do on stage and how their hybrid model will work, I'm very excited to see how that works and I don't know how it's going to play out yet. No, I mean, that's incredible. I think there's there's so much opportunity and um, and innovation happening that I, I, I think it's really exciting times. So, um, Bindu, I mean, just what would you say uh, to musicians, artists today, um, you know, whether they're sort of thinking about learning, whether they're already uh, established, uh, you know, what would be your kind of two cents to them? So my, my standard thing that I've been saying for the last decade, very honestly, is like, 
work hard every day in the right direction. Make sure that you're doing something. I mean, you can't sit on your couch and hope that you're going to reach there because it's it's all about waking up every day and grinding. And I still I subscribe to that. But now, like over the last few months, I've been like, also, don't take yourself too seriously because there's so much you're not in control of. You get up, you work hard, and then just kind of let it go because you don't. You might have this ambition of where you want to end up, but just make sure you're building your skill sets because you don't know where you're actually going to end up. Absolutely. Listen, um, it's been so much fun talking, and uh, I love what you're doing. And and kudos to you, and and really good luck with the race. And um, you know, uh, uh, amazing. So, and I and I hope we can meet in person and and listen to you uh, someday so soon. I hope so too. It was such a pleasure. This totally made my day. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Talking to Bindu, I believe that if we as women entrepreneurs are able to find a support system or if we are able to create a support system around us, then the sky is the limit.